Welcome to 20% Time, a podcast from the team at Titan, a web development consultancy that specializes in Laravel, Vue, React, Livewire, all kinds of stuff. Uh, my name is Dave Hicking, and I'm here, as always, with my amazing co-host, Susanna. How are you doing, Susanna? I'm doing okay. How are you doing, Dave? I'm doing, I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. I'm very excited today because we are joined by somebody who is long overdue to be on this show. Possibly, I, th- I think he's the, the longest serving member of Titan. I've made it sound like yeah. he's been in the armed services yeah. or something when I said that. Uh, Jameson, uh, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Dave. And Jameson, for folks who don't know you, who are you? What do you, what do, you do? Uh, who are you? Well, <laughs> you probably haven't necessarily ever heard of me because uh, I'm just like one of those quiet, introverted programming people. Yeah. Um, but I've been with Titan longer than anyone other than the bosses. Yeah. Uh, I've yeah. been and Dan. Uh, I even beat Keith out in tenure. I know. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm one of those people who does their work and loves their work and then goes and does a whole bunch of other things that aren't necessarily technology related. So. <laughs> and that's great. I think that's the way it should be. That's I the think, way right? it should be. <laughs> yeah. be, be. To each their own, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, one of the things that we we sometimes say around, around sorry, I don't know if we, one of the things that like Dan and I sometimes uh, say to, uh, about Matt, Matt as well say about Titan when we're talking to potential clients is like, you know, nobody has seen more uh, older code bases, uh, older Laravel code bases than Keith because of often what Keith does, right? Where he takes a look at people's code bases. But hour for hour at Titan, I don't know if anybody at Titan has spent as much time in older code bases as you, Jameson. I don't think anyone can wave a stick at the amount of time. <laughs> <laughs> and and you just wrote recently, uh, actually about a month now as we, as we record, uh, you wrote a really, really good and interesting blog post called Catching Up Laravel. And I wanted to have you on the show today to kind of almost do like a behind the scenes, like maybe expound a little bit on parts of that and ask you some questions and kind of kind of dive into that because this is something that Titan gets asked about all the time. Uh, devs always have to deal with uh, the sort of, okay, I've got this old thing. What do I do with it? And so I kind of want to dive in if that's all right. Absolutely. Okay. So I want to like, let's start with sort of First principles, um, because uh, words are tricky, which is one of my favorite uh, sayings lately. Um, what is legacy, right? So when someone says they've got a legacy app, how do you, uh, as a dev, think about that term? Like, how old is is legacy? Like, how old does it have to be to get to that point? Uh, I think mostly what it does is it prompts me to ask the next question to the to the client, like. What do you mean by legacy? Uh, because <laughs> sure. uh, there's some there's some uh, assumptions yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. There's some assumptions. Like there could be some pearl stuff in there that we <laughs> you know uh, don't want to deal with. But like most of the time, when they end up hitting you know tighten up for uh, something like this, they are probably in the PHP space. Um, so yeah. in that case, if someone is saying a legacy code base. I'm kind of assuming that it's been around for about a decade or more. Mm. Um, in some cases, that can be like six years or more. But yeah. I, th- I think the the true legacy ones are the ones that were written in the early PHP 5s or lower um, and then have evolved probably since then to newer versions of PHP, but probably got stuck somewhere. Mm. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, you, since you said you spent all this time working with legacy apps, did you, have you always enjoyed working in this sort of projects or did it kind of like come about or, and what do you find interesting about legacy? Or maybe if I rephrase it, do you 
work with legacy by choice <laughs> or is it that you always end up working <laughs> with legacy whether you like it or not uh i think yes to both in in some ways but uh first i think there's it's important to understand that different people have different dispositions towards types of work mm. um and then <clears throat> And the thing that I've really recognized about myself as a programmer, uh, even when I was writing my first applications in a like a, a partnership duo, uh, it always ended. It's realizing how quickly a person is excited about or is uh, competent at learning new technology, and how much they are capable of repeating work with like incredible diligence. Uh, and I fit more on the side of learning new technology is a little bit harder. Um, for mm -hmm. me to like focus down and figure out what I need to pull from docs or blog posts or whatever. Um, but then once I get a pattern in my head, my brain fairly happily repeats it forever mm -hmm. um, without losing a lot of focus. Um, so I'm a really diligent human being in general. So I think that really uh, helps with a lot of the parts that most programmers kind of burn out with working with legacy applications is that they need something new and shiny to keep them interested. And mm -hmm. like I find interest in the nuance of the somewhat repetitious nature that you find converting or upgrading old legacy apps. I bet there, I mean, I, I, bet, I imagine there also might be a bit of like kind of, I don't know, intrigue or kind of like discovery to like sort of trying to unpack, how did we get here? Like, you know, trying to understand the code base and you get insight into, oh, they did this. And everybody's got reasons, right? But like, you know, I, I imagine that might be part of it as well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was certainly a thing I wanted to touch on uh, during this podcast yeah. was that like, if you want to come from a more judgmental perspective of programmers who always do greenfield work. So yeah. greenfield for, you know, anyone who doesn't know is just like brand new, fresh application. There's a bunch of specifications and a client who's excited about doing the thing. And you just work really hard to start from nothing and give them something that works. Um, mm -hmm. And with Greenfield work, you're so capable of, since there is no user base, there is no living, there's no application yet. Yeah. There's no one that's expecting anything other than whatever you deliver. Uh, there's this capability of just going raised earth with anything that you do uh, where like, Oh, we worked for you know, a week on this thing. And then the client decided that they actually don't want this thing. So we're just going to rip it out. Um, and, but in the context of a legacy application with an existing user base, you don't get to rip things out. Mm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sometimes you do. And, sometimes you feel you really, do. <laughs> and when you do, it feels amazing. Um, <laughs> But there's a whole bunch of due diligence work that you have to do coming up to that to make sure that any data that you need out of that, that the, the users are notified that the, uh, man, the list is endless um, regarding the things that you need to make sure before you get this glory moment of deleting five files or 2,000 lines of code. Um, but yeah, in the context of just being able to uh, acknowledge the fact that legacy applications are living beasts mm. that have existed for a long time. They almost always lack tests. Uh, so the application is the one's true source of yeah. what it does. Yeah. 
and digging through ever so carefully to kind of suss out what needs to change as I'm like literally making little pawing motions as I'm like gently pushing dirt <laughs> yeah, around. Very uh, gentle. And, <laughs> um, because we, there, there's some, the ways that we used to write PHP code, um, especially back in procedural PHP code days before we got even to MVC, uh, there's just some, some functions and things and ways of doing array data manipulation that is inscrutable, unscrutable, inscrutable. 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 Yeah. Uh, and you kind of have to figure out a way to leave it the way it is, unless you can get an absolute definition from the client or figure it out for yourself to make sure that that method behaves the same way. Because like the worst thing that you can do is upgrade some code, but then miss out on some important uh, bits of business logic that mm. have worked for five or ten years um, that's going to cause some client client to be upset. Yeah, I wanted to touch on sort of this uh, this idea of okay, so you've got something. Maybe it's old, maybe it's legacy, maybe it's whatever, but it works and it runs. And it's often Jameson, as you know, like you just said, it does some sort of very important core, whether it's a back end office operation or whatever it is. It's super important. And so sometimes there's like a the sort of question of, well, what if we like did this what if we built on it what if we tried to go in and and add things as opposed to actually you don't want to touch this except to like make sure that it you know that like you know you're only touching what you have confidence that you won't break you know what i mean and, and sometimes i know at titan that comes down to like the simple question of <laughs> are there tests can we actually prove like like that what we're going to do is going to work but like how do you kind of approach that Okay, let's break that down sure. into a couple of different questions. That was a rambling so the question. So the first question I think that I want to answer is how do you decide if an application should not be touched? Mm. If it should just exist in its form until everything dies? Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think my, my first and primary concern there is security. So... And you can achieve its security in a, in a, in a handful of different ways. Um, but like, if you're running a little internal application that doesn't have access to the internet, security fixes matter a whole lot less, especially or if the application houses data that isn't secure, um, doesn't need to be secure. If it is hacked, no one cares. Then that's a whole other like interesting reason for like not caring about security as much mm. um, but mostly uh, i know a lot of companies out there have like inter intranets um, <laughs> and if applications only live on intranets your security concerns can be a lot smaller than if it's open to the internet and if the domain is uh, available to the public web right um, if it is available to the public web um, then my question is is it up to date as in is PHP up to date? Yeah. Is MySQL in a, a reasonable shape? Um, and anything that's blocking or your, your JavaScript dependencies capable of being up to date? And if the answer is no, uh, because all of your software packages have been abandoned five years ago, <laughs> um, you should probably, like, you're existing in a state that will eventually be compromised. <laughs> yeah, it'll, it'll catch up to you at some point. And it could be fine for another five years, and then you lose all the, you know, like all of your data is compromised, or your server your site goes down. It could be fine, um, but it might not be. 
my uh i i'm a little bit into uh beekeeping and mm-hmm. there this mm-hmm. uh i know it was became pretty popular uh a number of years ago when beehives all over the country started collapsing colony collapse disorder primarily caused by the varroa mite infestation which this this animal existed in the world but then it spread um and basically some people opt to track the mite populations in their hives and other people opted to not and uh a couple of months ago, we had a, pre- a presenter that was a specialist in varroa mite uh, just talking about how it was. And there was one cautionary tale from one uh, beekeeper who said, yeah, I went 15 years. I never did a single mite check. I never lost a single hive. <laughs> and then one year I lost every one of my 25 hives. <laughs> so like anecdotal uh, perspective in like we haven't been compromised compromised yet is not necessarily a safe yeah way to approach things <laughs> it's yeah just because it hasn't happened yet it's it might be just around the corner it could be well you mentioned security which is obviously a big thing but have you ever heard about any reasons that you don't think or like that i'm not I'm saying bad but maybe misguided reasons why people want to upgrade an existing running app I would say one of the most difficult types of upgrading work, which is not exactly answering your question, uh, but we'll see how if we get there. Um, the most difficult way type of project to be on is when a client would approach us and say, hey, there is this existing application that does all of these things. Mm-hmm. It is written in this PHP framework. We want it to exist to be in Laravel, and we want it to do exactly what it did before. <laughs> mm. So it just changed the framework for whatever reason, not necessarily security or because their existing application is outdated. They just want to switch frameworks. Mm-hmm. Or maybe their security is an important part of their desire to upgrade, um, or there is a certainly a bigger feature set or a more user developer friendly uh, code base mm. associated with Laravel, uh, but the the key challenge here is make the same thing exactly mm. as it is works right now. Right. <laughs> you is can it... can you tell I'm speaking from experience? I, yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to ask like how much does that scare you? But I mean, maybe more broadly for the folks who are listening, how much should that scare another developer who might be listening to this? Or somebody, or somebody who's not a developer and they have this app and they want to ask somebody to do that for them, maybe. Yeah, so in the, pro, in the process of upgrading a legacy app, whether you're changing frameworks uh, or anything, it, the thing that you really need to be careful about is that if you are starting from scratch, there's all of, again, those little bits and pieces of business logic that exist in the code that a function looks like it does this thing. But it actually does this other thing in a really specific case, and it can be really hard to identify when that thing is happening. Uh, so if you're going to recode that from scratch, you start losing all of these bits of information, which you don't, which don't really come out until QA happens. Right. Yeah. And then once QA pulls it out, then you will like there's some re-architecture of the application that you ended up needed to be doing, and then it adds another day, or it adds another two days, or two weeks. Um, so. Any sort of contact, any sort of situation where an existing application is running and you have to duplicate everything, then you're going to run into 
a menagerie of lost business logic. Mm -hmm. And then it's going to pop up at inconvenient times. And it's almost certainly going to extend any bid or scope that you could possibly give to the client at, on the outset. <laughs> you mentioned in your blog post on the Titan website that actually some small application might be worth rewriting from scratch rather than trying to upgrade. So when would you then decide? I mean, I think you mentioned that anything that's smaller, about 25 routes or what, 25 controllers, you would consider rewriting rather than upgrading. So why? Again, speaking from experience, I guess. So there's a there's a kind of most of the time if an if an application is less than 25 routes, um, which means it's going to be you know several entities in the database, probably. Uh, the application itself is a lot easier to overall like get into you, your brain, <laughs> mm. and kind of suss out what it does, what it doesn't do. Um, and depending on that situation, uh, going even if the application is written in Laravel, uh, but if it's like in early fives Laravel, even going through, um, we often use Laravel shift internally and for clients. Sure. Going through 10 Laravel shifts can take a long time. Um, and mm. at the end, you still have to have a lot of working knowledge of exactly how Laravel now nine uh, is structured which is very different in some ways than Laravel 5.1. And so even though Laravel Shift will get you a lot of the way to what is considered a modern uh, development, uh, sorry, directory structure, uh, it's still going to leave some stuff here and there. And so it's going to kind of, it's not going to be, it doesn't allow Laravel to be an example to you, the developer, on how we're going to be doing it from here on out. Hmm. So it can, and then also, once you do get it up to Laravel, whatever the latest version is, it will be, end up being a lot easier to continue doing Laravel upgrades from that point out, because Laravel as an ecosystem and as an application framework is a lot more settled than it was back in the early fives. Hmm. So if you have a small number of routes, extracting individual controller methods out and putting them into a fresh Laravel application can probably save you some time. Um, and it also results in you having a very fresh, uh, shiny directory structure, um, middlewares, et cetera, without having to remember as an individual developer, like how these changed from 5.1 to 5.5 and then from 5.5 to 6 and then from 6 to 9, um, which are like, places where there are significant changes to the underwiring of Laravel. Have you ever started upgrading an application or legacy app and then decided actually scrap it, I'm just going to rebuild it from scratch? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Often? Uh, <laughs> yeah. So there, were, there was a while there, a couple of years, where all of my projects at Titan were in the sort of Laravel 5.3 to Laravel 5.5 realm. And... Uh, because of that, I didn't really know or like wasn't ingrained knowledge where Laravel 7 or 8 at the time, how it was structured. Um, so rather than going through, I started doing the upgrade process, but I didn't really know where, where I was going because I wasn't mm. familiar with the way that Laravel was now. So I started doing the work, got pretty confused and frustrated because like some things had changed where they were working and like the hacks that I had been ma making on middlewares, etc. 
in 5.2 were just like broken. And so like suddenly my application wasn't working after doing a shift or two and in a way that I couldn't immediately fix because I didn't understand where Laravel worked, like how it was expecting me to do this thing now. Um, so at that point in time, after, I don't know, maybe 10 or 20 hours of work, I was just like, nope, we're going to start over. Uh, <laughs> so what I did is I started up a brand new Laravel application and then ran them side by side, figured out what, authentic- what authentication packages, uh, which were now available that weren't available then, um, and like shifted things over piece by piece by having the two mm-hmm. applications side by side. Um, but since the application was only a limited number of routes, that was a lot more achievable than if I were doing all of that piecemeal shifting over um, with a 100 route or a 200 route, which is yeah. like basically you can't do it at once. <laughs> it's impossible. No. Um, at least not one person, maybe if you had a team. I want to go back real quick to the, you were talking about how, you know, as you're, if you're trying to rewrite something, you know, the business logic is tied up in, in bits that you may not understand in the old app. And when you, you don't really discover it until you get to the QA portion. And I think one thing that happens sometimes when you, uh, when you try to uh, either do a, call it a, a significant update or a rewrite or, you know, something more than just sort of piecemeal is you, it, it can take a long time for that new work to get to a, place where it's where people often feel comfortable shipping it right so you build this whole thing up and you get down this whole path and nobody outside of the dev team has i mean you might have done some demos you might have shown it off but nobody's really gotten into it and then of course you run into problems when it comes to doing this sort of thing is the answer just to like try to start small and ship as often as humanly possible so that you can get that feedback yeah um but that's 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 a loaded yeah i love it (laughs) the the challenge with um and i kind of tried it i tried to outline outline that in my blog post which is basically saying little wins i think you have this whole section on it right yeah Yeah. the little wins and deciding where your big breakpoints of work deliverables are going to be Mm. um and you can only figure that out based upon what bits of security need to be up like what what of your packages what of your php need to get to be upgraded um how far can we push php up before uh we start running into oh all of these function calls are no longer valid but the behavior is different so now we have to like bring in a helper function or it makes one of our really old packages not able to work anymore um so figuring out like what your first step is to get PHP forward. What your first step is to get your packages up to something that is close to or currently supported. Um, And then like pulling everything forward that needs to get pulled forward from that first big step and then calling it good. And that may not be the thing that the client wants at finish, but at least it's one pull request. then as you're going, sometimes you run into situations where there's an old bit of code that is bad and we don't want it to continue to survive. Um, or there, it's a feature that was going to, to be ripped out or modified anyway. Then that's a good opportunity to be like, okay, we can work on this. We're going to write it in as, in as modern of a way as we possibly can with the constraints of how much we're upgrading PHP and Laravel on this pull request. And so the client gets a new 
feature or an upgraded feature, um, but you're not, and you're not pulling up code that you're you're going to change anyway. And so you can offer that as a like this is a thing that we can give you, but I wouldn't generally recommend doing it in that way unless it just doesn't want to move up with you anyway. Like if you have to ditch it, you might as well rewrite it in the way that the mm. client wants. Mm. And if you don't have to ditch it, I would say just push it off a little bit longer <laughs> if you can. Um, sure. And then, of course, the client is going to give you feedback and they're like, no, this absolute, this feature, this tool absolutely needs to be updated. And then you have to throw it in. And OK, that's fine. Um, but uh, I think the, the key component here is that so many of these like one or two or three PRs that will happen in a legacy uh, application upgrade from old Laravel to new Laravel or from just barely got into a Laravel container of an old procedural PHP app um, to something that looks more recognizably Laravel. Uh, those upgrades, if you're working with a small team, can take months, half a month, a year. Um, so trying to keep those as a lightweight as possible is an ongoing goal, desire. Mm, struggle, <laughs> um, for- I would think. <laughs> struggle yeah because i'm like end of the day the sooner we can get that first pr out yeah the better it is for the client so like even if the client feels like i'm pushing back at them i'm still like working to what i feel is their best long-term interest and i think the better it is for the for the devs on the team as well right because it sometimes is let me say scared we'll say sometimes it's scary to get that first if it, if it feels like it's too early right like because you're like oh this this work's not ready yet. It's like, well, it's got to go at some point. <laughs> well, we know as devs like that, how important it is to sometimes you need to upgrade your application. But sometimes there might be a little bit of pushback from the marketing or the product team that will say, well, actually, it's working just fine. And why do we have to invest all this time and money into something that's working? What would you say to that? What would you say to them? <sighs> There, I think there are two things. There's one, there's the, the beehive varroa mite analogy, mm-hmm. which is even if it is working, totally fine, but it's running old PHP, it's running on an old outdated server, um, there's a security issue there. Um, there's also a, an issue that I haven't touched on yet, which is uh, the, your ability to spin up new environments. In that, like, once you get to a certain age of Ubuntu, once you get to a certain age of PHP, if you live in uh, provisioned environment, server environments, uh, there's a point in time when a, a service uh, won't be able to spin up your PHP 5.3 anymore. Mm. So if for whatever reason your, your server, server falls over, which just happens sometimes, and you need to go and you need to start and spin up a replacement production server. So you're assuming no data loss, there's no security breach, it's just your server got tired and died. Um, and it could be because it's living on some cloud service, it could be because it's in one of your employees' closets. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't have a way to spin up that environment again quickly, that's application downtime. <laughs> that uh, dramatically erodes your, your customer confidence especially mm-hmm. if it happens more than once in a, like any amount of time, like once a year, if your servers fall over, like, ooh, I don't know, it's probably going to be rough. So just because it is there and it works, you need to be able to think about like, 
oh, do I have a server that just lives that can be either is the same power as my production server or uh, can be quickly upgraded to the, be the power of my production server that if production falls over, I can push that database data over to that fallback server and get, um, get right back up again. If you mm-hmm. can still do that and the application's old, cool, great. Um, but if you can't, that's also a smell for like, if you can't build those environments, you need to figure out, you need to get to a point where you can start building those environments more rapidly and more consistently. We had one client once uh, who there was one person, one administrator who was in charge of all things. Actually, no, it wasn't one client. It was many clients. Yeah, was, yeah, well, I, I, think that's, <laughs> I think it's not even just client. I think it's just that's sort of sometimes still true of many places, right? Like there's the one person. And that one person happens to know from memory how to build and provision a new server to do the things that needs to be done. If that person becomes disgruntled, if that person gets sick, if that person just disappears off the planet because they're on some beach someplace um, and you run into a problem, then you kind of end up in a situation again where how do you, how do, how do you how do you move forward? Right. Yeah. And then so, you have a problem. <laughs> there's going to be a big fire eventually. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, yeah, I think that's just in general true. Like one of the things that I think we always try to help our clients do is make it so that pushing to prod is never mind not scary, but it's just like routine and is very doable and is as automated as possible. Right. Like, because part of what builds up, I think, with when you're dealing with, because oftentimes like a, a legacy app will also come along with a legacy infrastructure. Not always, but like sometimes that is that comes along with it. And there's just like, well, we haven't made this upgrade yet because updating it or pushing live is like a big deal, you know. Mm. And it's and then that then all of a sudden, well, we can't, you know, there becomes like a barrier of like, well, we can only do things that are important enough to justify a big push. And it's like, no, 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 we gotta we gotta tear all that down and have it so it's just yeah, you can just. Once it's been tested, you can just make it live. It's okay. Nothing will break. Like that's the that's the goal anyway. And a really good way to can to move from that it's a big deal to a yeah. not big deal without sacrificing the integrity of prod production deployment processes yeah. that already exist is saying like, okay, prods exist. Prod exists over here. It's fine. It's great. What we're gonna start doing is we're gonna add a sandbox environment or mm-hmm. a staging environment. Yeah. And so first that gives them an opportunity to figure out how to make production again, <laughs> uh, right? Because it like in this case, this in case in this case, the staging environment should be almost exactly production. It may cost a fair amount of money, but it's worth it. Um, or like if we can we can downspec some comp- some parts of staging that aren't important, but like it should be almost the same environment, even if it's not the same, like thirty two core. 600 terabyte drives um Mm. but as they start provisioning and building that staging or uh sorry i keep on misspeaking as they continue to build uh that staging environment um they will learn things that that they didn't remember about their production environment how to build it etc and then as we start building our deployment processes to automate like adding continuous integration that runs tests um, building scripts that you know push and pull the right things to the right places because often these older ser- server architectures don't follow a traditional uh, forge server 
Um, so sometimes files and directories need to get copied and moved around. Um, we're turning like information from that exist in employees' heads uh, and random scripts distributed around into mm -hmm. deployment scripts. So those scripts become documentation as to mm -hmm. how these things live. And then once the both we have and also the client has gotten used to getting the staging working and it feels like that process is working smoothly, then they have a whole lot more confidence to switch over product productions deployment systems to that. So at that point in time, you, you turn a switch. Most of the time, the best way to do is to actually move production uh, to retire and just hold production as it is, and mm -hmm. then point all the new traffic into the staging environment, make this your new production. And then if something goes terribly, terribly wrong, you still have your old monolith intact that you can fall back to. Um, to some degree, of course, there's always complications with falling back once you've been living in a different environment. Um, but then you spin up a new staging server um, and then formally retire your original legacy server. And then you're in a, in a space where you can actually start deploying again in a way that doesn't feel like this onerous, on, onerous burden. Mm. Okay, so... Uh, if someone's listening to this and they're a dev who has inherited in some way uh, a legacy app, aside from reading your your excellent blog post, do you have any do's or don'ts or maybe first things that people should keep in mind as they they are looking at this wonderful gift that they have been handed? Breathe. First of all, breathe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I completely agree with Susanna. <laughs> um, one thing, especially if you've always... If you as a developer have always been on younger applications and you are gifted an old one, uh, you need to remember or I need you need to feel empowered to say, wait, this is going to like the pacing of working in older applications is much slower than moving in newer applications, um, both in like new uh, feature development as well as making a single change, especially as you're trying to figure, like, suss out from the application where a thing lives. When, you know, a, uh, a stakeholder is saying, oh, I need this button to do this other thing, or we need to add or change some text. Like, it's possible that that button lives in four different places and is duplicated <laughs> mm. um, for different kinds of users. And that actually may make sense in the context of that application. It might be the right choice. Uh, but you're not necessarily going to know that from the outset uh, unless you have inherited an application that's very old and also really well documented, hmm. which it's, there's no way that happens. So, <laughs> so rare. Uh, Those are rare beasts. May, or just like rare components that you'll run into yeah. um, because one developer had to change it a thousand times and was just like, man, <laughs> I forget about how to do this every time, so I'm just going to write this in the code and like a little comment that says, if you change it in this file, change it in these other files. <laughs> um, I've done that to myself. Oh. <laughs> yeah. What I really like when I read your post and you mentioned that uh, you kind of reframe errors as your friends, not your enemies. I think exactly the thing you said that uh, errors are the guide to path forward, not the bane of your existence. Mm -hmm. So for me personally, they are still kind of not friends. I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't go around with my friends. They are a little bit scary still. So have you always felt this way? Or is it something you get to eventually? How do you reframe 
this? Like, how would you start looking at errors? I think for me, it would help if they weren't red. I think the red color, <laughs> like when you think of, you know, the output in the terminal, everything is red. I think that already makes me feel really un, you know, anxious. So maybe they, we could start there. But other than the color, how, how, how would you tell me, how do I reframe my relationship with errors? Please help. All right. So maybe it will help if I frame it in the context of the alternative which is you have a legacy application that doesn't have a single test and you need yeah. to make an upgrade and you don't really know the application super well or mm -hmm. it has, you know, three, four, five hundred routes, uh, dozens of controllers uh, and some like smatterings of legacy code in there. So there's, there's some stuff that just won't ever have tests until it gets kind of put into a more layerable context or it gets unit tested or whatever um but like then you can't even like you do the upgrade you open up the web browser to go to the place and there's just this error and like there's nothing you can do there's no you just gotta go and you gotta fix that error and then you go back to your browser and you refresh the page and this happens especially on the first go when you just didn't upgrade like you might spend weeks like a week just trying to get that first page to load. Hmm. Um, whereas if you do have tests, uh, you're going to have probably some integration tests. So like making HTTP calls hmm. and being able to assert like a certain user is able to access a certain resource. Um, and those inner pages tend to be a little bit more forgiving uh, hmm. because they're not doing that initial authentication and redirecting that user according to their user state or whatever. Uh, but all those errors are telling me specific code paths that don't work rather than just this blaring message of the application is broken. Mm -hmm. um, and so I tend to be able to get past the initial application is broken when tests are erroring at me. But in the context of um, the big main screen errors, it can take a lot longer because there's more things you have to get through. So I would say errors are friends because it means that I don't have to think and remember the business logic mm -hmm. to be able to trigger off these various state changes in the application or in the database. Um, and then once I do fix that, and then I go and I change and try to fix some other tests, and then I go and break that other thing, the original yeah. thing, it like tells me that I broke it again. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is way better than me having to remember this like massive QA process for myself and do that 100, 200, 300 times over the course of several months. Uh, I'm going to miss something. Like the, the simple answer is tests help me not miss as many things. So they are my mm. friends. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to remember that next time I see an error. <laughs> and and when, the next time you're writing JMO a test, said, it's you're like, a I'm, making, yeah. I'm making a friend. I'm literally writing a friend right now. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's for the future, Susanna. Like, even though now I'm hating it, not <laughs> always, sometimes, but like next week, Susanna's going to thank me. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. I don't think I'm there yet with the friends, but I can see the path forward, I suppose. I, I definitely enjoy reframing uh, my, myself as different versions of myself being like past Jameson away past Jameson yeah. and future Jameson. Like me writing a test is for future Jameson's benefit, even though I hate my life right now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just like, I really don't want to write another one of these tests uh, for this specific user on this 
edge case that may or may not ever matter. Um, but and there are also times when I get to uh, think past Jameson, and there's yeah. other times when I get to curse past Jameson because I was being lazy. Uh, yeah. And if you live in a in a code base long enough, you will definitely have those situations. Where you're like, oh man, what were you doing? Um, but recognizing them as separate cells as opposed to your current cell will make you, you know, not necessarily feel oh. so. Uh, it will help check the sort of negative feel, like self feels that can exist yeah. as a programmer. I mean, this is totally not on topic, but it definitely helps me deal with anxiety. Anything else? Every time I kind of have the feel that I need to be upset at myself for doing something, I gave that person a different name. So it's not me, you know, I know it sounds probably crazy, but it's much easier to have two different people like so that the, the nasty voices you have in your head that tell you you're not good enough or you're not doing well enough and you suck, this is, you give it that voice a name and it's much easier to then tell that name to go away rather than saying, oh, it's me saying that to myself. So I definitely see the value in having different personas, past, future, and the current Susanna. And then there's this nasty one that I'm not going to name <laughs> <laughs> that every now and then just rears its head, evil head, and tells me that, you know, I can't do stuff. But it's definitely useless, yeah. Use, useful, sorry, yeah. So Jameson, that's actually the end of all of our questions. But before we go, I want to ask you, is there one thing that you wish we had a chance to talk about? That we didn't talk about today yes but i also don't know how to frame it in a way that is concise but let me let me try sure um, the idea is about testing and like i kind of want to write a post about it but i still like am very concerned about not getting the breadth and the depth to the right level um, but basically it's the idea of your when you come from an application or a route or whatever that isn't tested at all. And like, how do you approach, make those first steps to converting that into a modern code structure, easier to read, pulling out that old procedural PHP stuff with all the hidden business logic. Um, how do you do that? And what's the most effective way to ensure that you're not dropping business logic as you convert a legacy app into something that is more modern? And it's a thing I do a lot. Uh, but the the painful, challenging part is that each time I do it, it there's a kind of a different mm, approach because it's very situationally dependent. <laughs> uh, but this sort of like balance between starting with some unit tests, extracting some logic into a, a plain old PHP class, or making some initial assertions as an integration HTTP class, and then slowly kind of like starting from the very most outset of assertion that you can to the most detailed unit test assertion that you can, and then slowly kind of uh, add tests to fill in the middle bits until you have actual code coverage. And then once you have actual like code coverage, then you can start saying, oh, well, this weird function that I extracted is challenging and it is written in a way that is really hard to update, but we have it tested. We know what its output should be. So we're going to pull that out and we're going to rewrite that in something that is more developer friendly. And then once that's written in a nicer way, we can start thinking about like, oh, should this method actually return the thing that it's returning? Is that helpful for the front end? And be like, oh, actually the front end would like this shaped of thing. So then we're saying, okay, so 
if we know that we can assert that the front end wants this shaped of thing and we have all of this business logic here, how do we then change our unit tests to match that function return signature and make that nicer? And so this this kind of like wobble to like from the integration side to the unit test side will help you move from super old code that is probably returning HTML from a function uh, <laughs> as you go in a, in a view to something that looks much more like modern Laravel. And yeah, I don't know how to write it, but I think it will be good or interesting if I if I do yeah. manage that. Yeah, you should. I think this is all about, like it's a whole big balancing act. I mean, listening to you, anything to do with legacy, it's very, you're working a fine line between, you know, doing just enough to upgrade without breaking it. Like you don't want to steer either way, just right in the middle. And now what you said as well, like it's all about balancing, knowing where the line is. So you don't steer in any direction way too much. Yeah. And fundamentally, it's a perspective of um, how do you have the long-term perspective of maintaining, nurturing a living application versus considering it, considering deliverables. Mm. Um, and to me, that makes a lot of sense. And to other people, it might make a little bit less sense, but just like, it feels good to like get an application one step further down the line for me. Yeah. Uh, even if it's not anywhere close to where you want it to be or anywhere close to friendly to a new programmer yet. But it could be someday, maybe. Yeah, I like I like it. And like you said, like you, it might not be you working on it a year down the line. It will be another developer and then <laughs> kind of paying it forward. Like you, are, you want to think whatever you do with the application, you don't want it to, again, be in a state where somebody else will look at it and not know what to do with it. So whatever you do, any little step you make, or you take, let's make it better than what it was yesterday. Mm -hmm. Good good words to live by and code by, I think. And a a good way to end this episode, I think. Jameson, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'll link to the the blog post that we've been talking about uh, in the notes. So if you haven't read it yet, uh, just whatever podcast app you're using to listen to this, you should see a link there. Jameson, is there any other place people should go to find your stuff online? Honestly, I don't have a huge online presence, so yeah, go go to Titan. Eventually, uh, we'll add my contributions to the <laughs> Titan website, and it'll be great. We do need to update your, uh, you know, when you click so inside website when you click there, on someone's there's photo. There's a pull request up for it. Okay, good. I was gonna say, yeah, yeah. I, I did, I did, I did good. I, uh... <laughs> we should get that approved. I'll, I'm sure, I, I'm sure I know who to talk to to get that done. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, Yeah, I think that's it. Thank you so much, Jameson. Appreciate it. Susanna, thank you as always. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you. Thanks, y'all. Yep.